0: Hello, all of you, and welcome to Grace Baptist Cartersville podcast. Before I turn it over to Pastor Kyle. Hi there, and welcome back to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. My name is Pastor Kyle. And listen, before we do anything else, I want you to know, if you are in the Cartersville, Georgia area, we want to invite you to our Easter Sunday service that we're going to be having this year. Now, instead of having it at Grace Baptist Church at our physical location, we're going to be having it at Hamilton Crossing Park, our local rec park, on the football field and in their football bleachers. We would love for you to come. That's going to be April the 9th at 10 a.m. And if you have any kiddos that are coming with you, we will have an Easter egg hunt immediately following the service. If you've never been to Grace Baptist Church before, if you're interested in joining uh, us for a Sunday, make Easter Sunday that day, and you can join us for our Easter service at Hamilton Crossing Park at 10 a.m. We would love to see you if you'd like more information on Grace Baptist Church, as always, you can go to our website at gracecartersville.com, find us on Facebook, like us on Instagram. All of our services are also up on YouTube. Thanks for joining us. We are continuing on in our study of 1 Corinthians, continuing today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, before we get to all that, let's look back just for a minute on where we've been. So far in the Christ centered church, the name of this sermon series, we have covered that Jesus Christ is our foundation of a successful church. We must build everything off of the gospel. We've learned about the divided church, a people that are split by a personality that is generated at times by greed and rivalry. We've seen the role that Christ-centered church has in planting, watering, and caring for the soil, and it doesn't just fall on the pastor to do that. Pastor Jake, our student pastor, even preached on the importance of being a faithful manager, a humble faithful manager of the church as well. Then Paul has spent the last couple of chapters dealing specifically with the sin allowed to go on within the church. He exposes sexual immorality, but then places the responsibility on the church members of how to handle it. And last week, Paul uplifted and put on a pedestal the importance of a right marriage relationship, but also a rightful single relationship with the Lord and what it looks like as well. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 8. We are going to read the entirety of the chapter. Here we go. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him about eating food sacrificed to idols then we know that an idol is something in the world and that there is no god but one for even if there are no if even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth are there as there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is one god the father all things are from him and we exist for him and there is one lord Jesus Christ All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience become encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined. He's ruined by your knowledge. Now then, you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience. You are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that your word changes our actions. Lord, open our hearts that we may be susceptible to what you're speaking to us in order to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've told you at times, my personal belief is that there are points in Scripture where Paul gets a little wordy. Uh, But there are instances, though, in Corinthians where I love his quick, to-the-point statements that he makes. For us, and for us with short attention spans, these statements seem seem to work better for us. Statements like, your body is a temple. We've covered that one. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And here in the first three verses, he hits us with knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What could Paul possibly mean by this? Knowledge in itself is definitely not a bad thing. We must acquire knowledge. Proverbs 4 tells us that wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. Gain understanding. Seeking the Lord is partially gaining knowledge of the Lord. But too much knowledge, allowing knowledge to be the end all, Creates arrogance. The know it all is not the same thing as the knowledgeable. The know it all knows everything. Why? For their own benefit. As the text says, so that they can stick out their chest and look down their nose at everyone else. Then we are given the opposite and more desired behavior that love builds up. Gone is the selfishness, gone is the arrogance. Love is given for the benefit of someone else. Is this what you call love? Love isn't for you, but for someone else pertaining to you. This quick slogan then is followed by the explanation, if you think you know everything, it is the very first clear indicator that indeed you do not. Real love is outward action given towards the worship of God. Real knowledge is being known by him, From your love to others. This is our foundation for today. And from the rest of the text, everything else we read is an overflow of these first three verses. And as has been typically, Paul, he's about to dive into this issue, a current issue happening at the Corinthian church as he's writing. It's not just sexual immorality that is plaguing the church, but there are other issues as well that stem from the spiritual immaturity of its members. When it comes to food that has been sacrificed by idols. Again, a very specific issue being brought up in this church. Specifically, Paul says, we know, we have knowledge, that any idol is imagined. It's created, carved, or sculpted. There is no source of power to it. It ain't even worth the material that it's made out of. There is indeed only one God, and we are made from him. We are made for him. Did you notice that? And we are made to worship him. So a meat dedicated to a false god is not dedicated to a god at all. Great. Good understanding of that. Good to have that knowledge that we already have. So we could just cut this sermon short and be done right here. But again, that would only be stopping at knowledge, To acquire this meat, one would have to actually walk to a pagan temple in order to pick it up. It was a primary way for these temples to raise money. They doubled as working businesses on the side. According to the ESV study Bible, these temples would also serve the community as a location for a banquet hall or a fancy dining hall. It was a normal operating business that fit into the Corinthian community. It was harmless. It was good food. It was benefiting others around it. But the Corinthian church hadn't learned yet how to love properly with the spiritual knowledge that they had been given. So maybe you and I ought to keep going and dissecting these verses. I don't want us to fall into the same trap. Verse 7, Paul, the apostle begins turning the tables on us and taking our mind from that pure freedom that we have in Christ, then applying it in a more beneficial way towards other brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul reminds the church of just how young they are. There are still plenty among them that are drinking spiritual milk, to borrow from 1 Corinthians 3. And many have just recently been freed from the belief of these pagan practices and idols. What good then would it be for a young believer to see a more mature believer eating something that was sacrificed to another idol? What would that do to a young believer. At best, it would create confusion. At worst, it may actually lead them towards sin. Now, I didn't say it would make them sin, but it could propel them into a behavior that's not beneficial. It's also not permissible, and it does not build up. For those of us who are more black and white on matters and and take them more so than face value, Paul clears this up in verses 8 and 9. He says, look, it's not even about the meat itself. That's a moot point. The point is, what will it do to your neighbor? We said it two weeks ago. I, I told you it would come back around again. We don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone. The weak is then spiritually victimized by the one Who has gained knowledge, but they didn't know better than to look out for the spiritual needs of their spiritually younger brother or sister. Our wordy apostle cuts the fat here and lays it out as clear as possible. For someone to act in disregard of another believer in this way is acting in sin. It's a sin against Jesus Christ. What's Paul's solution? If it means that a brother or sister could potentially fall by seeing him do it, he will never do it again. Just the thought of someone gaining the wrong perception of what he is doing is enough for him to lovingly cut the behavior out. It's not the behavior of that self that is the issue. Paul addresses that. It's how it could be interpreted by someone that isn't as spiritually developed. This chapter truly takes into account what I'm currently going through in seminary class. It's a Christian ethics. It's a tough class, believe it or not, but in this ethics class, you learn processes, you learn procedures on how to think through an actual Christian ethic. But in trying to process how 1 Corinthians 8 should be applied, we will look at strategies for us to acquire Christ-centered knowledge. We must weigh the following. Here's the first part of our strategy. Think of our motivation. Here are some questions that I'm often asked Is it a sin to watch a certain movie? Is it a sin to listen to this music? Is it a sin to drink alcohol? Is it a sin to fill in the blank? And in trying to simplify the question in this regard, we truly miss the bigger issue. Honestly, By this thinking, depending on who you are, you can fill in that blank with anything, and the answer could be yes, and the answer could be no. I was in a small group years ago. We were having a similar discussion on what does and doesn't glorify God. Everything we do, we want to glorify God. But one of my friends said, look, be careful with that thinking because macaroni and cheese doesn't glorify God, but doesn't mean that it's a sin. Well, it could be. Too much macaroni and cheese would be gluttony. It could be sin. I could be completely taken over by my love for macaroni and cheese. I've got to understand the motivation. Why am I wanting to do what I want to do? Chances might even be good if you've got to ask the question, is it a sin? Chances are good it might be if you're having to justify why you're doing it. But if your motivation sounds like this, I just want to do it because I know that the action itself is not a sin and I'm free to do so. I want to do it because it'll be fun. I want to say this because I think it will be funny. What do all these comments have in common? They are all self-centered, self-focused, self-obsessed, and that is not Christianity. I don't understand it. I'm not sure where or when this attitude came from. I've got some ideas, but we've come to a point, I feel like, in the last five to ten years of our Christian society, especially among church members, where we want to go out of our way to make comments, to say things, and we don't care who gets offended by it. Now, when we have that attitude, when we have that motivation, I don't want us to back down from our beliefs. I'm not saying we need to change doctrine and theology of what we believe to be biblically sound, but I am saying that if our motivation is to use the Bible in such a purpose and in such a way that we intentionally try to be a jerk to someone else, what good of a witness is that? How then would you be drawing an unbeliever to Jesus with this attitude? How would you be sharpening the iron of another young believer? How are we going to be anything but a stumbling block to other believers with that type of attitude? In no way does it reflect what we have been called to have. And that, according to Philippians 2, is the same attitude of Jesus Christ. So having that, what is what is in line with the same attitude of Jesus Christ? Well, from this text we learn second part, we need knowledge with love and that's awareness. Most dangerous attitude that I believe someone can have is the I know attitude. I know what the Bible says. Well, I know this and what I'm supposed to do. Having another believer try to instruct you, trying to encourage you into a different direction, and the best answer that you can come up with is, well, I know. How cold, how thoughtless, how selfish is that attitude that, again, in no way reflects the mindset of a believer. We are called to make actions that are aware of how others will view them as well. We've always got eyes on us. It's cliche, but Sting and the police had it right. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Listen, brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be a daunting task for us. We shouldn't be intimidated that we live in a goldfish bowl or even at times we live in glass houses. Because if we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us and we have the proper motivation, the more eyes that are on us, it gives us more opportunity to be the light and shining example to change that perception of what the glory of Jesus Christ should be if our goal is to show Jesus, we should be willing to accept the idea that others are watching us in what we do. We need to have awareness. If we are spiritually mature, we must also be tuned into the spirit to know the difference in where we are spiritually and where someone else might be just because someone isn't a believer. It doesn't mean that we should go out of our way to put them down. We said last week just how important it was to communicate with our spouses. Why isn't it also so important for us to communicate between believers, between brothers and sisters in Christ, the behaviors that might be stumbling blocks for us. Then a communication of humility of one that to another when there needs to be a behavior that ceases to help bring about the unity in helping another avoid behavior. What happened to that attitude, that awareness that our hearts should break for the lost, that we should go out of our way to show the love of Jesus to others? Third thing, quickly, we need to understand the difference between liberty and legalism. We've swung the pendulum one way into what religious freedom looks like. Now we need to be mindful not to turn towards legalism, maybe you're aware of this in your own life, but us humans tend to take things to the extremes. We struggle in trying to moderate anything when we speak of Jesus being perfect in justice, in grace, in truth, and in mercy. We strive for this, but usually we fall in to one or the other in this example. We all tend to fall towards the liberty or freedom at times. I can do whatever I want to. Or, as is the case, I hate to say it, with most good old Southern Baptists, we are more susceptible to fall into the, it ain't right, I don't want to do it, you don't need to do it, you don't need to think about it. If it falls even in the same ballpark, you're a demon for even thinking of it. We take it to the extreme. And it becomes legalism. Here's a good definition of legalism that I found from the Christian Study Library online. This is their definition Do you place a higher value on church customs than on biblical principles? Many of our so called rights and wrongs in church life are the product not of the Bible but a family background, culture, social and economic factors, geographical locale, and a long-standing institutional commitment to doing things the way that they've always been done. Simplify that. Our behaviors in church, most times, are not based off of biblical principle, but instead on what we've always done. Once again, as long as the Bible doesn't prohibit such practices, you may well be free to pursue them, but you are not free to insist that others do so as well. We do this at times and tend to look down our spiritual nose at those who don't follow God's will for our own lives. Pastor Chuck Swindoll said it this way, taken from the same website. He tells the story of a missionary family that served in a place where peanut butter was hard to obtain. This family arranged for friends in the U.S. to send them peanut butter so that they could enjoy it with their meals. They soon discovered that other missionaries in the same country considered it a mark of spirituality that one abstained from peanut butter. It was their cross to bear. This family didn't flaunt their enjoyment of peanut butter, but they did continue to thank God for it and enjoyed it in the privacy of their home. But the pressure and condemnation from their fellow missionaries intensified to such a degree that the family eventually returned home disillusioned and cynical. I've got to ask you today, whether it's at Grace Baptist Church or whatever church you may attend, Is there peanut butter in your church? What are the things going on, the tradition, that become so important, such a priority, that they supersede biblical principle? We need to learn moderation. We need to ask ourselves some serious questions, some higher questions, like, do we do this to worship the Lord? Or do we do this For my personal preference, are the hills that we die on, are they principle or are they empty tradition or are they Bible-based? For a church to grow, to become a Christ-centered church, it must be built on proper knowledge and then used for love. We must become flexible with tradition. Tradition can become an idol just like anything else. We must be more concerned with sticking to Scripture. In general, as is the case with our society, we need to be careful not to overshare anything, but take into consideration more the spiritual needs of others around us. I want to ask you, are you struggling with freedom? Has something become a sin or an idol in your life that you can't let go Would you pray for God to remove it? Would you pray for God to reveal to you actions that may be a stumbling block even for someone else? Would you repent, turn away from these sins, and even move move towards reconciliation as you walk along someone else and build them up? Are you on the flip side? Do you struggle with legalism? Are you better at rules than you are a relationship? look, we talk about repentance and turning away from sin. Most of the time, we build this up in our minds that we are doing something we shouldn't. Well, legalism is just as much something we shouldn't do as too much spiritual liberty. Again, legalism is just as much a sin and a false gospel as any other. If you've got questions on that, if you've got questions on salvation, maybe you hear all of this and you say, you know what? I don't even know that I have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Feel free to email me. My email is kyle, K-Y-L-E, at com. I'd love to open up some dialogue with you. It would just be between us. It would just be something that would guide you towards salvation, towards a relationship with Jesus Christ. But until then, as you ponder that, I'd love to pray for us. God, we know that too much of anything can be bad. We know, Lord, however, that knowing you, walking in your path, seeking your wisdom and your knowledge to be used for proper love to those around us, Lord, that is right in line with your will, with what your word says. We pray, God, that would be our priority that we wouldn't misuse or abuse things to where there become sin in our lives. But also, God, we don't want to add rules or specifics to self-impose that would limit the spiritual growth of someone else. Lord, we need you to navigate this world. God, I pray for the one listening that may not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray they would reach out whether it be to me or someone else in our church or to a neighbor, to someone else they may know that could answer their questions as well. We know, God, that you move through all things. We love you, God. We thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. I know that's a lot to take in at one point, but we appreciate you listening. Again, find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Email me if you have questions. Don't forget our Easter service at Hamilton Crossing Park at 10 a.m. on April the 9th. We'd love to have you there. In the meantime, love God, serve others, and show grace.